Good morning. Before we uh, jump in, <clears throat> as we like to do occasionally, remind you of the Bible app if you don't ha- have it. Go wherever it is that you get your apps and download it, and there's instructions there on what you need to do as far as clicking on the More tab in the events. But a lot of things in there uh, each week, questions for discussion, further learning, and some of the resources that I talk about and links to things. Uh, in particular, <coughs> excuse me, in particular, I want to make you aware that of uh, something I've added in for last week's sermon. Last week at the end of the sermon, I invited you to practice radical forgiveness, and I've been able to locate a resource that I wanted, and I put it in the Bible app as an exercise in forgiveness. So it's there, as well as some other things. I want to encourage you to use the Bible app live event if you don't already. So I just saw a story the other day about the population of purple sea urchins. Uh, Apparently on the northern coast of California, they're doing quite well. And uh, scientists believe that because of the rising ocean temperatures, they've taken over and have begun to destroy the kelp forest along the coast there. They apparently eat everything in sight, a bit like some teenagers I've had in my home. They are invasive, they are pervasive, they are toxic in such numbers, toxic to the environment. It turns out, however, that these purple sea urchins have something in common with the mystery of the kingdom of God. Toxic and invasive and pervasive as they may be, they have something in common with the mystery of the kingdom of God. And Jesus has something to say about these things in this morning's passage, and we'll get to that eventually. First, though, my guess is that most of us, if not all of us, at one time or another, have either said ourselves or we had someone say to us that the Bible or parts of the Bible are just very difficult to understand. Mark Twain supposedly once said, some people are troubled by the things in the Bible they can't understand. The things that trouble me are the things I can understand. Now, first of all, we're not entirely sure Mark Twain actually said this. Second of all, if he did, so let's assume he did say it. Did he mean that there are, uh, there are parts in the Bible he understands that are offensive and reprehensible, morally speaking, and that troubles him? Or did he mean there are good parts in the Bible that he understands and it troubles him because he thinks he will never measure up to it? We don't know. Either way, the truth is still there. There are parts of the Bible that are difficult to understand. Some of those parts of the Bible we're going to see today, and some of those things, it almost looks like the truth that is in them is being intentionally concealed from us, like we're not supposed to get to it. And if we want to live as Jesus calls us to live, if we are on this journey from curiosity to Christiformity, having Christ's nature formed in us, fleshed out of us, then a lack of understanding of these things is a problem. How are we going to get there if we can't understand these things? This is perhaps most clearly seen in many of Jesus' parables. And what we just heard, read a moment ago, comes at the end of a, of a fairly long section uh, in Mark's Gospel. And uh, in it are a few things that are confusing and difficult to understand. Hard to understand, as Twain might have said. But in these statements, we're going to discover why they are hard to understand. And we're going to discover the good news that we celebrate in this morning's passage, which is simply this. Everything that is hidden will be revealed. Everything that is hidden will be revealed because God is a God of revelation. We're going to focus on chapter 4 this morning, but in order to do that well, we need to kind of backfill a bit from last week's passage that ended in chapter 3, verse 6. So in chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, Jesus withdraws to the lake after the threats against his life. He withdraws to the lake with his disciples. The crowds following there, he ministers to them. Eventually, Jesus goes up on a mountain, takes some of his followers with him, uh, and uh, there he appointed 12 
that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Why did Jesus choose 12 disciples, 12 apostles? Because he is being very intentional about calling to mind and fulfilling the prophetic words in the Old Testament where God promised to restore the people of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, each apostle, each apostle representing one of the tribes. <clears throat> He's painting a picture of Israel's long hoped for deliverance, though it will not likely look like what they had hoped. Mark says that Jesus appointed 12 for two purposes. First, they are to be with him. And second, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Two of our ECC touchstones align perfectly with Jesus' two basic purposes in making the disciples of these uh, 12 apostles transformation and presence. They align perfectly. The 12 are called and appointed they might be with him, that they might spend time with Jesus and become more like him. The character and the nature of Christ formed in them, and they are appointed that he might send them out to be present in the world. In the same way, we seek to help one another be with Jesus by providing resources and relationships for this journey to, toward Christiformity in Jesus, transformation. And as we are transformed and hopefully ever transforming, we are then sent into the world as agents of change and redemption, presence. So Jesus begins to restore Israel and to gather around him a community of people who will pursue God's purposes in the world with him. Then Jesus entered a house. And again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to, to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who, who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, but by the prince of demons he is driving out demons. More opposition. First, his own family hears what's going on and says of him, he's out of his mind, or more literally, he's beside himself. And I want to ask, <clears throat> Mary, did you know? <laughs> well, I'm sure she knew a lot. But I don't think she had it all figured out. I don't think any of them had it all figured out. Regardless of what they did or didn't know about Jesus, his family steps in to take charge of him or even to restrain him is another way to translate that. Second, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, have come all the way from Jerusalem, and they accuse him of being possessed by the prince of demons. I mean, talk about drawing the battle lines here. Those who oppose or resist Jesus are accusing him either of being insane or of being demon-possessed. After a brief parable to defend against the demon-possession accusation, Jesus then says, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. This is one of those confusing places I mentioned. I cannot tell you the number of times people have come to me and want to understand this passage. They will either say, what in the world does he mean by that? Or they might say, I'm afraid I may have committed the eternal sin that Jesus is talking about. But once we keep it in context, I think a fairly simple explanation emerges. Just before this, Jesus has, label, has been labeled insane or demon-possessed. Now I ask you, how many people would you or I listen to who were insane or demon-possessed? Unless you were insane or demon-possessed, you wouldn't listen to someone who was insane or demon-possessed, right? Once we have labeled someone in this way, or today perhaps we might say that someone's a jerk or an idiot or too liberal or too conservative or immoral, once we have labeled someone as something, 
we can no longer hear what they have to say. Frankly, it's part of the problem in our country these days. We, don't, we can't hear what one another has to say. We label each other. We'd rather do that. We're not listening. And when the person we're not listening to is Jesus, well, then we have a problem. Once we have shut out the Son of God, there is no way out. This is the eternal sin, shutting out and ignoring the Son of God. It is eternal in the sense that until they repent of it, they're guilty of it. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, then, is a rejection of Jesus as Lord and Savior. The reality, of course, is that Jesus is either demon-possessed, insane, or he is, in fact, the beloved Son of God in the flesh. It's not all that different from C.S. Lewis's classic paradigm that Jesus cannot simply be a good moral teacher. He is either a liar or a lunatic or Lord of all. To name Jesus as either a liar or a lunatic is to commit an eternal sin. But that sin, like all others, can be repented of. In other words, the only eternal sin is the rejection of Jesus. So in the last few verses of chapter 3, we come back again to Jesus' family who came to take charge of him back in verse 21. Someone tells Jesus that his mother and his brothers are outside and want to see him, and Jesus then uses that as an opportunity to redefine the family, the family structure. Now it's not just our biological family that matters. Now it is the, it is the, the people who, who seek to do the will of God who become our family. There's a new kind of family values at work in the kingdom of God. The members of our family are those who have come to know God and seek to follow Jesus and strive to pursue God's purposes in the world. And at the very least, they are just as important as our biological families, if not more so. And now we're ready to enter into chapter 4. Jesus is now back at the lake, a new section. Every time you see Jesus at the lake or crossing the lake, you're, you're entering into a new section in this part of Mark. And he begins to teach in parables. Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Right after this is another one of those places where Jesus says something very difficult to understand. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret, or more literally, the mystery of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. And we want to go, what? It would appear that Jesus is intentionally trying to keep people from being forgiven. Like he wants the truth to be kept hidden from us. But in fact, he is, as he is about to show them, the whole point of parables is to reveal something otherwise not seen. And so Jesus returns to the parable of the sower one more time from earlier in the passage, which shows you that all this goes together. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? Let's stop there. My contention here is that what Jesus means by this is that the parable of the sower that he's just told them is a parable about parables. 
and how parables work on us. So Jesus says, look, if you don't get this one, you're not going to be able to stand any of the other ones because the key to understanding them is in this parable. He continues, the farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown to them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word at once and receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among the thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. While I think that the word or seed in this parable certainly includes the gospel message of Jesus and how we respond to the good news about Jesus. It certainly includes that. It is, in context, more pointed than that. Given the context, Jesus is speaking about the nature of parables themselves. Parables are sown like seed on the ground. Parables grow in us and produce fruit. For others, trouble, persecution, and such may cause them to fall away, or the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things choke the truth that is, that is buried in the parable and make it unfruitful. If we want to understand the parables, we must be willing to be with Jesus as those first disciples were. We must be willing to be with Jesus and to trust that he is worth listening to and to learn from him. Otherwise, we will be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. The mystery of the kingdom of God will not be revealed to us or in us. Jesus then attempts to illumine this idea a little further. He said to them, do you bring a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand, for whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. A parable, then, is like a lamp. It is meant to give light, not to hide it. Parables are not meant to be kept under a bowl or under a bed. They are meant to be brought out and put on a stand for everyone to see so that they can be understood. What is concealed is intended to be revealed. That was an accidental rhyme, but it works to help you remember it. What is concealed is intended to be revealed to all who will listen, to all who truly desire to hear what Jesus has to say about life in the kingdom of God and the nature of life that Christ and his followers have, have taught us and bring us on earth. And of course, the parables also stand in for that larger theme in Mark about what scholars refer to as the messianic secret that I think Pastor Jordan mentioned a few weeks ago. The messianic secret, that is that, that Jesus, the Messiah, for some reason seems to not want people to know who he is just yet. He wants to keep it a secret for a while. He's not very good at keeping it a secret, but he's, he wants people to keep it a secret. And in a sense, Jesus is also saying that at some point, who he is the light of the world and the kingdom he has brought will also be revealed. Put on a stand for all to see. But once again, he comes back to parables. Consider carefully what you hear, the parables, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have, will be taken from them. If the soil of our hearts is not ready to receive the seed of truth Jesus sows in us, then even what we have, even what we have begun to understand, will be taken from us. By the scorching heat of persecution, 
or the thorns of greed and worry and the desire for other things. Rather, we must choose to consider these teachings on God's kingdom carefully so that more kingdom fruit can be born in our lives, in our relationships, and in our world. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. And now that Jesus has carefully laid the groundwork for how the parables work, how the seed that is scattered bears its fruit in our lives and in our world, how, how the light of the parable is revealed, he proceeds finally to begin to teach his disciples and us more about the nature of God's kingdom and everything that is hidden will be revealed. And this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus has explicitly said, I am now going to teach you about the nature of the kingdom of God. We hear it in verse 26. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what the kingdom of God is like. I'm about to reveal something to you that is very important. Pay attention. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts a sickle to it because the harvest has come. The kingdom of God, like seed, sprouts and grows, though we may not know how. And eventually, though it starts small, say, in the lone son of a carpenter in Nazareth in the first century who becomes an itinerant rabbi, or in a small band of 12 apostles, or in a small church community today, or, frankly, in the work of people like uh, in ministries here, in the, in the vitality team, in the ministry planning team, it starts small, but as we give our attention to it, as we listen to it, things grow. By the grace of God, they grow. The kingdom of God grows, and it produces fruit. The harvest will come. What is hidden will be revealed. And then Jesus reveals a bit more about the mystery of the kingdom of God. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. There is more hidden in this parable than I, for one, was aware of. And this is a great example of exactly what I'm talking about. And I think many of us could say something similar. I I took a class in college many years ago uh, on the Gospel of Mark with the man who at that time was a leading scholar on the Gospel of Mark. His book is still uh, still revered in in scholarly circles. Uh, I have preached uh, on Mark several times. I have read, and certainly this parable, and I have read Mark many times. But I saw something this week that I had never seen before. Why? Because if we sit with it, the parables continue to grow, and what is hidden is revealed. Most of you can probably tell a similar story, that you've, saw, you've read a passage for years, but something was going on in your life, and you read it, and you saw something you'd never seen before. When Kim and I moved into our home here in Lafayette, the backyard had nothing but grass, no trees, no shrubs, no flowers. That had to change. So we created a little garden on the, well, it wasn't that little. It was a, a garden on the south end of it. It's not a very big yard. And uh, I have, like, no patience when it comes to gardening. I want to see things, like, immediately. So I said, we got to put some plants in there that, that quickly look good, right? I can't wait for things to grow over the next two or three years. So I decided uh, English ivy would be a good thing to put in there. Yeah, see, you're laughing already. 
So since our yard was not very big, I was warned that I would regret planting it. It's very invasive and very prolific. It was, and I did regret it. For several years afterward, we would try to pull it up, and it just kept popping up over and over. Well, it turns out that the mustard bush was of a similar nature. In fact, it was considered a rather unpleasant plant. You didn't really want it in your garden. It was toxic. It was more like a weed that took over everything. Now I ask you, what does it mean that Jesus deliberately likens the reign of God with an invasive, toxic weed that no one wants in their garden? It's not too much of a stretch to say that the way people in the first century viewed mustard bushes was not that different than the way the scientists and the residents in Northern California view the purple sea urchin. In fact, right now, uh, the story that I linked in your Bible out says that uh, one of the ways they're trying to deal with this is harvest them and sell them to restaurants and people eat them. Uh, there's a lot of them out there. You see, for a while, for a while, we who are here may love all that the kingdom of God is and stands for. The truth is, historically speaking, preaching it, living it, spreading it, this kingdom of God, these things have often led to conflicts with the world. The world does not always want God's kingdom to flourish or to take over because the kingdom wars, the kingdom of God wars against darkness. And as John 3.19 tells us, some people, many people, love the darkness because their deeds are evil. So to compare the spread of God's kingdom to mustard seeds, to English ivy, or to purple sea urchins reveals something to us we might not have otherwise known. For some people, the kingdom of God is dangerous and invasive. And I most certainly don't mean to suggest that the kingdom consists of power and control and violence, or that it should. It shouldn't. That's, we should repent of that if that's what we think the kingdom of God is. It's not the kingdom. Rather, a way of life that is all about love and justice and compassion and mercy and servanthood and righteousness and holiness and goodness and truth is just not always welcome in the world because it will disrupt the status quo. It will disrupt the status quo. It reveals the darkness in our hearts and it asks hard questions of us. It asks hard questions of our way of life and of our society it asks us to change, to repent. Furthermore, the image of birds flocking to a mustard seed bush or, and, and living there actually calls to mind several Old Testament passages where Israel is compared to a tree where the Gentile nations, represented by birds and other wild animals, flock to its branches for shade and for shelter and for food. All of these references are in the Bible app live event, but it's from Ezekiel 17 and Ezekiel 31 and Daniel chapter 4. The picture, then, is of the kingdom of God spreading and invading and becoming a home for all sorts of unwanted birds, Gentiles, tax collectors, and sinners. Oh my. The kingdom of God, then, could be seen as unwanted even by religious folk who may not want their particular county in the kingdom to look a certain way. But once again, not only will the truth hidden in the parables be revealed, but so will Jesus as king of the universe be revealed. 
so will the kingdom of God as home to all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and every sector of life, both high and low, for everything that is hidden will be revealed. That is the mystery of the kingdom. How shall we respond to this good news of the gospel that in Christ one day everything hidden, everything difficult to grasp and understand will be revealed? Jesus tells us that the way to experience the revelation he wants to give us is by being with him. Being with him. By sitting in his presence, listening to his teaching. We experience the revelation Jesus wants to give us when we behave in a similar way to those first disciples. We are called to be with Jesus, sit with him, watch how he lives his life, watch how he interacts with others, how he interacts with the Father God. And so I invite you to simply do that this week. Open the pages of the Gospel of Mark and read them. Start at the beginning and read the Gospel of Mark. Prayerfully, carefully. Don't don't rush it. Don't think you have to read it all in one day or in one week or in one year. And I'm just talking about the Gospel of Mark. Don't be afraid to read over small passages over and over again, out loud, repeatedly. Just let it sink into you like a seed sown into the soil of your very being. Be with Jesus. Make the time. Open your heart and mind to the Word of God and allow Christ to reveal Himself to you, to reveal His heart to you, His purposes to you, His vision to you, and His love for you. God is always at work. God is always at work in the world. He's at work in your life. He's at work in my life. He's at work in the lives of the people we love, the people we pray for. Even if you happen to be here today and you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, God has still already always been at work in your life. And it may be hidden right now, but it can be revealed. It can be revealed. It's a fundamental truth of the universe. And all of creation groans for it. It is also true that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is also true that the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. It is also true that the good work God has begun in us will be brought to completion. It is also true that when Christ appears we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. It is also true that our present sufferings are simply not worth comparing with the glory that will one day be revealed in us. It is also true that while in the past God spoke to us in many ways through his prophets, now he has spoken to us by his Son, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being. And our calling, our privilege, our joy, our salvation, our path toward true revelation begins with being with him, the Christ who perfectly reveals God to us. For this is the mystery of the kingdom of God. When you and I apprentice ourselves to Jesus, when we attach ourselves to Jesus, learn from him, follow him, allow his character and his nature to be formed in us and fleshed out in us, our Christiformity, everything that is hidden will be revealed. In us, to us, and through us. Not all at once. It takes a lifetime, and I'm of the mind that I think it takes an eternity. There's always going to be that much more to come to know of God, to be revealed to us. By the grace of God, 
May it be so in your life, may it be so in mine, and may it be so in the life and ministry of this congregation. Would you pray with me as we close? God, we thank you for all that you have revealed to us in the gift of your Son, in his birth, in his life, in his teaching, and in his death and resurrection. We pray, O God, especially for any who might be here this day who have not yet come to that place of responding to the revelation that has come to us in Christ. We pray that you would open hearts and soften them. We pray that you would give them boldness to speak out, to ask others to pray for them or to pray to you to receive the forgiveness you offer and to enter into the kingdom and that you would more and more reveal your love to each one of them. And for us, Lord God, who may have walked with you for years, for decades even, there is also more for us to come to see and understand. Help us, Lord God, to apply ourselves to being with you, to being with Christ, to listening to him and reveal to us the mystery of your kingdom in our lives and in our world, and help us, Lord God, to be those through whom that kingdom is revealed in the world. And as we celebrate this good gift of Christ Jesus, as we celebrate this good gift of, of the teaching on the kingdom that continues to speak to us thousands of years later, we give thanks. And as we give thanks, Lord God, we offer back to you a portion of all you have given us. Help us to give in the offering this morning out of gratitude for your goodness to us. Help us to give cheerfully and faithfully and intentionally. And help us to steward well over these gifts and all gifts that you give us. And may you receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise in Jesus' name.